0: Well, good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. As uh, Virtual Matt uh, introduced me, my name is Jacob Bouvier. I uh, am our young adults pastor, and our group, and I work with our groups as well. So, I, I hope that if we have not met, we will get to sometime in the near future. There's a lot of new faces around here over the past couple of years, and uh, so I'm looking forward uh, to getting to know each of you more. Any braveheart? fans in the the room, any Braveheart fans? Braveheart's one of my all-time favorites, okay? 1995 Best Picture winner, won several other Oscars as well. Braveheart, if you've never seen it, we're like, how many years? A lot of years since then, I can't do math. 27 years past Braveheart coming out, so I'm gonna spoil a little bit of it. Uh, But it took place, it it, chronicles uh, the true story of William Wallace, who fought in the first war Uh, for Scotland's independence uh, from the reign of England. And of course, as any Hollywood movie does, it takes its own liberties. Uh, And I'm not sure that William Wallace ever said this quote that I'm about to read, but this quote impacted me. When I saw the movie for the very first time, and every time since, uh, there's something that William Wallace says near the end of the movie. Now, in real life and in the movie, he is captured by English forces, and uh, he is condemned to death. And so, in the movie, uh, the way it represents it is, he is in uh, his prison cell, awaiting his execution, and he's visited by the Princess of Wales, who is married to the King of England, and she pleads with him. She begs him. He says, "William, if you'll just bend the knee to the king, if you're, o- you can keep the Scottish hope alive. If only you live, you know, keep it alive. If only you live." And William Wallace as stubborn and as committed to his mission as he is, he says these words to her, every man dies, not every man really lives. Every man dies, not every man really lives. I don't know what it is about that quote that just is striking to me, uh, but in some way, I feel it relates to us as Christians. We're all gonna die, and even if we've placed our faith And in Jesus, we know that we have eternal life awaiting, but we're not living right now. We're not truly living. Yes, there's breath in our lungs, our heart is beating, but are you actually living? I'm afraid that there are a lot of dead Christians in our churches and in our world, and we await eternal life to come but we're content with being dead until we get there. I think that scripture has so much more for us when it talks about eternal life, not just something that awaits, but something that is available to you right now. But instead, uh, Christians don't chart much differently uh, than non-believers in uh, levels of depression and anxiety and burnout. And we experience this just being consumed by the chaos of the modern world. And I'm sure you can relate in some form or fashion. We, you know, we, we try and do our churchy things and, and maybe you're a regular church attender, although regular church attendance uh, expectation now is less than two Sundays a month. Maybe you um, spend time memorizing a, a verse every now and then. Um, maybe you're in a small group Maybe you try and do your quiet time and stumble through it. And I think we can all relate to this. We do churchy things, but we still don't get a whole lot of life out of them. We're moved by worship music on Sundays, but we're also moved by Taylor Swift lyrics, right? Where are we missing this life that Jesus claims to offer? We're going to spend the next several weeks in one chapter of Scripture, One of the most beautiful and glorious chapters in all scripture, and that's Romans 8. And we're calling this series, Hope in a Broken World. It's because we need hope. We need hope. And I believe that Romans 8 gives us that hope and the life that we're seeking. It's all about life in the Holy Spirit, life in Christ been said that, you know, Romans begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation, and in between, you hear the gospel, you hear the victory that we have in Jesus, and this is our hope, and it lands right in the muck and the mire of all our everyday lives, all our ordinary lives, all our lives where we struggle through the depression and anxiety and the burnout and the chaos of the modern world, hope lands right here, and the hope that we have is in the gospel. But it's important, uh, before we just jump into Romans 8, it's important, and I have the hard job of setting this, this series up. I'm, I'm doing Matt and Patrick a, a favor in the next few weeks. We get to, we get to cover Romans 1 through 7 uh, a little bit this morning. And so it's going to be a little technical. We're going to walk through and try and trace Paul's line of thought over the first seven chapters of Romans so that um, it sets us up well as we dive into Romans 8, 1 through 4 this morning. And what we have in Romans, it's it's the fullest expression of the gospel in all of recorded scripture. And Paul is the author of the book in Romans. He's writing to a small church in Rome, a church that he did not found, but a church he longs to visit. He makes that clear in his letter. Um, And he traces the line of thought of the gospel. Where does it start and how 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 are we included in the gospel? In his thesis... Um, you can see in Romans 1, 16, and 17, it goes like this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's usually where we stop, but this next part's really important for Paul's thinking. First to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. First to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. For Paul, the story of the gospel is rooted in the story of Israel, and then spreads to the Gentiles. And so we're going to take a look at, in fact, you know, when we think of the term gospel, um, usually what comes to mind uh, for us is believe in Jesus and go to heaven when you die. That's probably the simplest way of putting it. That's what we think of gospel, believe in Jesus and gain eternal life. But for Paul, it's much deeper and much richer. Yes, what I just uh, mentioned is part of it, but there's so much more. And he records it in the very first verses of Romans chapter one. So you, will you read this together with me? It's on the screen. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, we're going to try and unpack these verses for just a moment here. To understand, this is Paul setting forth, here's the gospel, all right? And for Paul, um, we see very clearly in verse 3, um, the gospel is rooted first in Jesus' earthly connection to David. The gospel is rooted in Jesus' earthly connection to David. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish man. And there are a lot of um, messiahs who are, are self-proclaimed messiahs, especially if you were to read about the intertestamental period, the period of 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a lot of uh, self-proclaimed messiahs, people who had followers, they had a following, they had disciples, and they really, the Jewish people, really thought this could be their messiah to save them from their oppression. The problem was every one of those messiahs died. But Jesus, a Jewish messiah, okay, rooted in the story of Israel. And if we understand this first, Um, it's going to help us as we move through the book of Romans. Because after Romans 8, we get to Romans 9 through 11. And Romans 9 through 11 have been some of the trickiest chapters, uh, especially for Protestant believers to come to terms with. But if you understand the gospel as rooted in the story of Israel, it's going to help you understand the book of Romans a whole lot more. Okay, so we know for Paul the gospel is rooted in Jesus' earthly connection to David. Second, we know, this is from verse 4 of chapter 1, The gospel is rooted in Jesus' vindication as the son of God by his resurrection. So while a lot of other Jewish messiahs came along, they died, only one rose again from the dead, and that is Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection vindicates him, Paul says, as the son of God. And the gospel is rooted in Jesus' resurrection. And thirdly, verse 5 of Romans chapter 1 Um, It is, the gospel is rooted in the grace that we receive from God by faith. So it's rooted in the story of Israel, in the resurrection of Jesus, and the grace that we receive by God through faith. For Paul, this is the understanding of the gospel, much more than just believe in Jesus and go to heaven when you die. Okay, And so with that understanding of gospel, here's Paul's line of thought. This is going to be the quickest, uh, the, the quickest outline of the book of Romans <laughs> that you're going to get. So I both apologize uh, for it, and also I just want to say you're welcome for it as well, because we're moving through Romans 7, 1 through 7 really quick. But here we go. Romans 1 through 7. Um, he begins, uh, after his introduction, he, he opens with man's sin. And because of man's sin, Paul moves into God's Wrath and judgment against sin, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Then the law is provided, and Paul is chronicling this story. The law is provided, but Israel is unable to keep the law. Then Paul moves into God's faithfulness. In spite of uh, Israel's inability to keep the law, God is faithful. And he's faithful to save through the vehicle of faith. Okay, And then Paul moves into this uh, exploration of the representatives of mankind in chapter 5 and 6. He looks at Adam as the representative of man's sin, and he looks at Jesus as the representative of man's redemption. And then um, he talks about the Christians being freed for righteousness' sake in the back half of chapter 6. We uh, Westerners... And who have grown up in a Protestant evangelical tradition, we don't have a very robust idea of what freedom is. Freedom is not just uninhibited free will. In fact, scripture tells us essentially that if we are able to choose sin, in fact, if choosing sin is our first order desire and we can't reject sin in favor of something better then we're not free we are slaves so paul dives into this idea that we are freed for the sake of righteousness and then he moves again into discussion of the law and how the law remains powerless and insufficiency and insufficient to save because of sin. So that's the fastest explanation of Romans 1 through 7 that you're going to get. You are welcome to go read those chapters. Would encourage you to do so next week before we get in to the next few verses of Romans 8. Um, but with that being said, we move into Romans 8. And I love what um, Philip Jacob Spener, he was a German guy. I said that I butchered his name. He was a German guy from the 17th century. Lutheran theologian, he said this about Romans 8, if Holy Scripture was a ring and the epistle to the Romans, its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of that jewel. And so what what I want to do together with us over the next 20 minutes or so is take our magnifying glass. I had to look up the term for the specific magnifying glass that a jeweler looks at a diamond with. It's called a loop. I may be saying that wrong too. It's not spelled L-O-O-P. Uh, L-O-U-P-E, I believe. I think there's a few uh, jewelers in our congregation, but we wanna be like master jewelers and inspect this beautiful sparkling point in the gem of Holy Scripture. And that's what we're gonna do over the next several weeks together, and we're gonna begin with the glorious words we see in Romans chapter eight, verses one through four. So will you read with me? Therefore, based on everything Paul's just said, And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's a big idea. You know, a lot of preachers, they feel the need to get really creative and find a way to make scripture catchy and sticky. And here's my attempt at doing that today, all right? Here's the big idea. There is no condemnation in Christ, There is no condemnation in Christ. You have been set free in Christ, not just to be made alive, not just to inherit eternal life when you die, but so that you can really live. There is no condemnation in Christ. Beautiful words. But sometimes this language of condemnation is actually really intimidating to us. We can really struggle with the idea of a God who could condemn. And uh, it it starts, actually Paul will dive into some of this earlier in the book in Romans chapter 5. So we're going to read a few of these verses together. Verses 16 through 18 of Romans 5. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life throughout the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all People. All right, Paul uses a lot of, of big words here. But for Paul, and this is in, in his exploration um, of, of the death that is in Adam, but the life that is in Christ, that word condemnation, the Greek term is katakrima, it refers to a, a damnatory sentence, literally somebody being condemned to prison or death. And for Paul, condemnation is rooted in Adam. It's in the sin of man, whereas freedom is rooted in Christ Jesus. Um, But when we think of condemnation as specifically like a condemnation unto death, a lot of us take that immediately to the kind of eternal perspective. But actually, if you look at kind of the robust um, language in Scripture, death uh, often refers more, um, uh, it does refer to the eternal kind of death, and it also refers to the physical kind of death, but it also refers to the atrocities of sin that have invaded our lives, Where we go, where we sin, we bring death. We invite death. And you've experienced death maybe um, not speaking physically or eternally, but death in relationships, death um, in seasons, death in particular points (laughs) of doing life together. You've experienced this kind of death. And death is a result of sin. And in Scripture, in in the the Greek New Testament, the the term for sin is hamartia. It's the Greek term. And that really uh, has the connotation of a bow hunter shooting an arrow at his target. So think of an archer shooting at a target. The bullseye is the mark. What uh, hamartia, or sin, means is to miss the mark. It's missing his target. And so for us, you know, we interpret that as we've missed. Because of sin, we've fallen short of God's law. We've fallen short of God's standards. And therefore, because we are unholy, a just God is within his right to condemn sinners. But uh, I think sometimes that kind of, uh, that thinking, which is true, but if we, that's the only way of thinking about it, it leads us to this um, kind of thought of a vindictive, spiteful God who just wants to judge imperfect people. Really, what what God has done, okay, in, in the book of Genesis, he makes man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his image. Humankind is in his image. And what he wants to do is have relationship with them. Scripture tells us he walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He wants relationship. And the idea of Eden, what Eden was, the Garden of Eden, a lot of us had this misunderstanding that it was kind of a perfect utopia, and all we're trying to do since the fall is get back to Eden. I actually don't think there's a lot of evidence in Scripture to suggest that it was a perfect utopia already. I think it was good. Scripture's clear that it was good, but it was empty. It was full of potential, and God put humans in there, and he said, I want to build this with and he continues to want to build his kingdom with us. But sin, okay, when sin entered the world through Adam, um, here's what happens. He didn't just miss the mark of God's law, he missed the way of being fully human. He missed what God had intended him to be as his image bearers, and therefore you and I, because of sin, continue to miss the way of being fully human. And so, what happens is because God is holy, right, a holy God who wants to join himself to his created human beings, his partners in building up his kingdom, his beautiful world together, he wants to be joined to us, but because he is holy and because we have sinned and are unholy, he cannot join himself to unholy sinners until his son Jesus comes and takes our sin upon himself. But it is the necessity, it is the necessary reaction of a good and holy God to judge and to condemn that which corrupts his good world. And ultimately what we'll see is in Jesus, he condemns what corrupts us. He condemns in us what corrupts our way of being fully human. And so our, you know, some of this condemnation and judgment language, we can be really uncomfortable with it. But actually, if you read through scripture, the biblical authors rejoice in a God who judges. We're just gonna look at one example from Psalm 96. This is Psalm 96, 13. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in his faithfulness. The goodness and glory of God is displayed in his judgment. And the problem with kind of our spirituality uh, today is that we, uh, more than we want uh, the God uh, that is holy and righteous and just revealed to us in scripture, more we want a spirituality that makes us feel as good as possible. There's a whole strain of, of thinking here called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's basically this way. We want want a spirituality that does good and makes us feel good. And um, biblical spirituality will do that, but it has to acknowledge the holiness, justice, and righteousness of God. And for the biblical authors... For the Jewish people and the New Testament authors, they rejoice in a God who will come to judge. Because what God does in his judgment is he restores a world that is festering, a, a world that is corrupt, and he restores it to right. He makes it new. He recreates it again. And so the goodness and glory of God is, in dis, is on display in his judgment. And Jesus gets this. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 12, um, it will say, for the joy that was set Before Jesus, he endured the cross, the ultimate condemnation, the ultimate judgment of God, because he rejoices, one, over you and me. But he rejoices in the glory of the good Father. And so he participates in the condemnation. We're gonna keep moving through Romans chapter 8. Verses 1 through 4. This is verses 2 and 3. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Most scholars think that when Paul's talking about the law of the Spirit there, he's just ref- he's, he's paralleling um, the, the gospel to the law. Um, and that's why he uses the term law of the Spirit. He's referring to the gospel. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. Let's take a moment here and just make sure we have a good understanding of what the law is. The law, or the Jewish Torah, was given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. You can read um, this story in the Exodus, okay? And the law... All right, basically, it had this. Uh, scholars have divided it into three types. Um, there were ceremonial laws, which um, defined the relationship between Israel and God. And basically, these were rights for their forgiveness of sins, rights for laws for purification, laws for ceremonies that they would do to worship God. These were the ceremonial Laws. There were also civil laws. These um, directed how the Israelites would relate to one another and to the outside nations. And there were very specific sets of laws for them. And then there is the moral laws. And moral laws are what you think of when you think of the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill, murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery, These are moral laws, and all of the Jewish Torah, which was 613 laws in its original intent, as God gave to Moses on Sinai, it was designed for the flourishing of the Israelites. It was designed for their flourishing. It was for their good. And today, we would say, as a new covenant believer, the ceremonial and civil laws are not necessarily in effect for us, but the moral laws very much are. Think of a society where murder and adultery is rampantly accessible and acceptable, that does not lead to human flourishing. So would be, the moral laws are for our good, okay? Um, but a lot of us, and this is kind of a, even a, a, a later, post-1500 Protestant Reformation thinking, We have a a poor understanding of what the law actually was because the biblical authors will time and time again, you know, David will say it, the psalmist will say it, Paul will even say it in in Romans chapter seven. They'll they'll talk about the delight in the law. They rejoiced in the law. That doesn't fit our um, theology of salvation by grace through faith. Alone. But the law, really in its purest form, as given to, to Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, was for the flourishing of their society. It was for their good. But Paul will say the law was powerless. Why was the law? Powerless. Well, if you read Exodus chapter 32 and 33, you'll see that the first thing, Moses receives the law from God on Sinai. He comes down the mountain. He hears these shouts. He's like, right, what are those shouts? They're not, I don't, they're not shouts of victory. They're not shouts of defeat. What are these shouts? It sounds like they're singing and dancing. And he gets down and he finds the Israelites to have built a golden calf, an idol to a false god, and they're worshiping it. And so the first thing the law has to say to the people of Israel is You broke me. This is why the law is powerless. Because we are sinful people and we return to our sin. And so Paul will say in Romans seven, verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. The law intended to bring life, actually brought death. You familiar with an overhead projector? Some of the older folks in the, in the room are. Um, if you're younger than me, you may not be. Uh, we have an image here, if you're not familiar with an overhead projector. All right, so uh, believe it or not, I, I am young, but I still, we still had these when I was in middle school, and I had a college professor, and this wasn't even that, you know, it it's like 10 years ago, it's not ancient history. Uh, I had a professor who still used an overhead projector, he was old school. What is the point of an overhead projector? Basically, you slide the film over the platform, and the light from the bottom and the magnif- magnification from the top will project that image or text onto a screen for all to see. N.T. Wright says that the, 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 uh, the law acted as a form of overhead projector, in a way, of our sins. See, where uh, sin could lay on the platform, think of individual sin and the sin of the nation could lay on a platform, what the law did is it turned the light on and magnified it so that sin could be seen in all its ugliness, all its hideousness, all that it really was. It exposed sin for what it was. In this way, it acted as a projector. It shed light on or diagnosed the sin. It was never to be the full and final solution for sin, but it shed light on it. In fact, Paul will also share in the book of Galatians that the law acted as a guardian. It was a temporary placeholder until the people could get to Christ. It was like, a, like somebody who picks up a kid from their home and carpools them to school. It's a guardian, but it was powerless to actually provide life. But what's amazing is when Jesus comes, and he bears our judgment, our condemnation, on the cross, it's like all of our sins. If we each had an overhead, uh, if we each had an individual overhead projector with all our sin laid out on the platform, and then there was also a projector for all our sins as a community, it's like all of those projectors turned in to the cross at Jesus, and the light was hit at once, and everything on to Jesus. All our sin, all our mess, on to Jesus. And what does he do? He exhausts it. The full weight of our sin on Christ, exhausted. It's like he caused a power surge, and, and all the projectors blew up, and all the sin wiped off the platforms. That's what Christ did. It is Jesus who restores. And that's why um, he'll say, Paul will say in verse three, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. In his own very flesh, who is not condemned? Not us, but our sin. Romans eight, verse four. It's where he ties it together. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That term righteous requirement, okay, Well, in, in the New Testament, and a lot of Paul's writings especially, righteousness is tied to this idea of justification, okay? And justification means, it, it's a legal term that means you are declared righteous. It's like a, in a court of law, judge declaring you not guilty. You are declared righteous. And uh, growing up, we had this helpful way of understanding uh, the idea of justification. This was kind of through my um, middle school and high school um, small groups and whatnot. I would hear teachers say, justification is an easy way to remember it. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned, right? That's what justification is. And that was good. That was helpful in its time. And then, I started digging in a little bit more. Got to Bible college, reading theology, understanding, wait, there's more to it. I came across this term called the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Very fancy theological term. What it means is this, that Jesus, okay, his righteousness at the cross and in his resurrection, his righteousness is given to you. It is deposited onto your account. So you know what this means? It means that to be justified, to be declared righteous, it's not just as if you'd never sinned and become this blank slate. You're not just a blank slate only to sin again 10 minutes from now. You inherit all the righteousness, faithfulness, and obedience of Jesus onto your account. That is the wondrous, (laughs) doctrine of justification and the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And so from a a legal sense, okay, God sees you as righteous. And that's why Paul right here can say the, the, the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in us. Okay, but that's the legal aspect. What about the relational aspect, right? Because if God the Father sees us with the righteousness of his very own Son, do you know what that means? That means that you are adopted and you are loved. That means that God looks at you and loves you with the very same love that he loves his perfect, obedient, righteous, and faithful son, Jesus. That's how he loves you. You are in Christ. You are incomparably, irreversibly, incomprehensibly, unreservedly loved by God. If you walk away with one thing, know this. You are loved. If you are in Christ, you are loved. Christ's righteousness deposited onto your account and the love of the Father poured out on you the same way that he loves his very own son. You don't just squeak by when Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, you don't just squeak by, you pass with flying colors, because all that Jesus is becomes all that you are to God the Father. Absolutely beautiful. And so that's why for Paul, here in Romans 8, 1 through 4, um, law-keeping is redefined. It's no longer, you know, adhere to the 613 laws of the Jewish Torah. Law-keeping is being set free by the Holy Spirit, by grace through faith in Christ. And so, as we wrap this up, what does it mean to be transformed? Have you been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You know, this big idea, there's no condemnation in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. You can read that a couple ways. You can read it from a salvation orientation, which I believe is very right to do here based on the Greek terminology. There is no condemnation in Christ, meaning you are made alive in Jesus. You're made alive in Jesus If you're in here and this is new news to you, this is the gospel. This is the good news, that Christ has come that you might be made alive. And so if you've never trusted in Christ by faith, and that's all that it takes, I implore you, talk to somebody. Go ask a friend Come up to one of us pastors at the end. We'd love to share with you what it means to be made alive in Christ. You are set free to be made alive. But you know, when I look at our demographic surveys, um, we do every five years or so here at the church, um, usually it comes out that about uh, over 95% of our congregation has already trusted in Christ for faith, for salvation. And I rejoice in this statistic. It is absolutely beautiful. My question to you then is, are you really living? Are you just waiting to get to eternal life, content to be dead until you get there, or are you living now? Back to that quote from William Wallace. You know, a lot of us we we know, we've believed, we know that we trust in Christ for salvation. But we feel condemned still. And maybe not condemned, maybe we know that our shackles are broken, maybe we know that we'll get eternal life, but right now we feel like a rundown building, like a condemned building. And this is what our lives feel like. Friends, whatever you've done, whatever part of you feels unfit for use, You need to hear this today. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are set free to be made alive, yes, but you are set free to live. You're set free to live. Eternal life is not just something out there waiting for you, eternal life is here and now, the fullness and freedom of life in Jesus. And as we tap into this, which we're going to explore more over the next several weeks, we will become a people who are filled with the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the kind of people that we are to be. And to think of that joy, if you just take each one of those, what does it look like to be joyful? Are you joyful? Are you living into the joy that God has set before you? just encourage you, what does this look like in our work, in our friendships, in our marriage, in our money, the way, you know, if you're you're parents, what does it look like in how you parent your kids? If you're children, how does it look like in how you honor your parents? What does it look like as a church to be alive and living into the freedom that Christ offers? You know, if your life isn't more free after following Jesus, you're doing something wrong. I think Andy Stanley said that. Someone, I heard that somewhere. I didn't make that up. But if your life isn't freer after following Jesus, you're doing something wrong. There's a story in the Gospels in John chapter eight where this woman caught in adultery. You know, the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they, they hear about her, hear the rumor of her in town. They run into whatever house she's in, strip her off, the man she's with, throw her out into the dirty streets, probably still unclothed, and they pick up stones and are ready to hurl them at this woman. And the Jewish rabbi, and it's by, by the way, it's within their right, by law, to condemn her to death, to execute her by stoning. But this Jewish rabbi walks up, puts himself between the woman and the religious leaders, and he says to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone. You can just imagine the woman crying, her, her tears probably pooling the dirt into mud below her. The, she's alone, the man she was with, noticeably absent from the story. Just waiting every second, feeling like hours go by. as She's waiting for stones to be hurled at her. And one by one, she heard thud, 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 thud. The stones drop to the ground. And I love the text, it says that Jesus, that Jewish rabbi, he straightens her up. And he says, who is there to condemn you? She looks around, looks back into his eyes, says, no one, sir. I love these words of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. And that's not like, go and be perfect. That means go and experience life. You are free from the atrocities of sin in me. Friends, we are the woman in this story. And Jesus is saying to you, there is no condemnation. You are freed. Now go and leave your life of sin. Will you pray with me? Lord, we praise you for these glorious words in Romans chapter eight. Glorious words, life-saving, life-changing, life-transforming words. Words by which we can stake our claim on, Father. We grab hold of these words and proclaim them. There is no condemnation in Christ. Will you help our hearts to believe this? For those in the room who maybe have never met you, Father, would they take the courage to ask a friend to say, I want that life. And Father, for those of us in the room who have been living like condemned buildings, unfit for use, Father, would you uh, redirect our hearts to gaze at your beauty, see your glory, and know that you have given us life. And that we're set free not just for life after death, but you have given us all the life that we need before life after death. So we await that, Father, and we praise you for freedom. You've set us free.